Hey, buddy. Yes, Alice? How was your most recent viewing of Rogue One? Well, Alice, it has been at least a month since I've watched Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Um, did, was I supposed to this month? That's not what I did. Oh, no, I just like watching it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you didn't watch it. Well, uh, you know, I had I had something else on my plate, and it was to read the first section of Catalyst, a Rogue One novel, uh, oh, the prequel right. to Rogue One. Right, that's right. That was the homework. That was the <laughs> homework for this month. We've read the first 13 chapters of Catalyst, um, which is a, yeah. a really good Star Wars novel about uh, the, uh, the kind of background of Galen and Lyra. Yeah, it's, it, it is certainly mostly focused on Galen and Lyra. I would say that it's also a book about Orson Krennic. It's definitely a book about Orson Krennic. He features heavily in this book. And it's excellent. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's really, really good. In fact, I think it's kind of... I would never consider a prequel novel to be required reading to appreciate Rogue One. Uh, that's That's too big of a statement. But I really think it has enriched my understanding of Rogue One, the film. Yeah, uh, Even just reading this first section. Especially the uh, relationship between Galen Erso and Orson Krennic. I feel like that is so important uh, and such a, a weird and interesting dynamic explored in this novel. And as we move into other sections of the novel, we'll also start to get the history between Krennic and Tarkin. And once those two start having clashes on the page, their interactions on screen start to make even more sense. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I would also say that, that like, now I understand Lyra so much more deeply as well. Absolutely. Like, Lyra, Lyra is a character that, like many Star Wars mothers, uh, <laughs> gets, gets the short end of a stick um, in, in her film. And here is... Uh, vibrant and alive and complicated and I I love uh, Galen and Lyra's relationship especially in this yeah. book yeah it's really it's really good really interesting um, and for for those of you uh, listening if you haven't had a chance to read along or or you're you're behind we're going to be talking about these chapters these first 13 chapters um, pretty in-depth. Um, with lots and lots of spoilers. Yeah. Uh, so if uh, if you don't mind the spoilers or if you don't think you're going to get around to reading the book, um, then definitely keep listening. Um, and you can always return to this uh, to this episode later after you've read the book. Um, and but we're only going to be talking about this first section. Um, so don't worry about spoilers for the end of the book, although I think we know how the very end of the book goes. Yeah. Um, because it's just Rogue, it's just Rogue One. It's Rogue just one the first part of Rogue One. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're going to, yeah, we're going to talk about the chapters. We're going to kind of go chapter by chapter and talk about like our thoughts and our notes and stuff and, and cover the general plot of the story. So, um, let's just, uh, let's get started. Yeah. Uh, let's start with chapter one. Uh, as many books begin. Uh, we open on the Ursos uh, on this this planet, this icy world. Uh, they're on Vault. Uh, and, you know, they're working on this energy generator thing 
that's powered by synthetic kyber crystals. Yeah, they're experimenting with how to make a synthetic crystal that matches the properties of real kyber. And if they can get the crystal to behave like kyber, then they can possibly channel the kind of powerful energy that kyber crystals are capable of. Yeah, I kind of imagine what they're working on is kind of like what we see with like the um, the power generator room on Theed um, in in uh, Phantom Menace. Like what eventually they will be making is like this big underground shaft that powers. Well, Galen says it could power a continent or even the entire planet. Um, yeah. Like provide the power that an entire society needs to live uh and it's a it's a noble cause and they're living this really simple life uh kind of in this research station uh and they're kind of being funded by or they're, they're being like supported by the local government but also by this company that galen is working for right so he's working for zerpin industries or something like that Zer he's working for zerpin which is a, a company in the private sector and galen or so is a a fierce pacifist. <laughs> he has zero interest in the wars that are raging around him, otherwise known as the Clone Wars. I love that this story starts with the Clone Wars. That like that's the status quo for these characters. Yeah. Um, and that and that when the Clone Wars kicked off, Galen and Lyra said to themselves, "We need to get out, not get involved." isolate ourselves you know galen you'll have your work lyra you will interpret for galen who is <laughs> eccentric and kind of weird sometimes uh and we'll stay out of it for our safety for the safety of galen's work which he knows can be dangerous yeah um it, it's really interesting and and the, that their anxiety is well what if the separatists come but it's also kind of like well, what if the Republic comes? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So they're, they're sitting there trying to do their work and trying to stay neutral and out of it, just focused on energy production. Um, and yeah, and they, they talk about, you know, the fact that there is a war. They mention that the Separatists are a thing. They mention Palpatine. You know, they, they kind of talk about the war as like an abstract idea until suddenly it's not abstract anymore. Uh, because Vault... Uh, ends up falling to the separatists, yeah. like mid experiment. <laughs> yeah, and and like so many other things in this novel, uh, it's kind of a trend. Um, the world reaches the Ursos, uh, and yes. not the other way around. Exactly. The Ursos, the Ursos will do everything everything they can to remain neutral and pacifistic, uh, and that simply is not possible. Partially because of the way the Star Wars work, um, <laughs> but also partially because once once they're a little dragged in, they are continually dragged in by forces that they are incapable of perceiving. Um, and that's actually kind of tragic. But also, the intense neutrality of the Ursos is really interesting because it it rhymes with Jin's neutrality. Exactly. You can you can 100% tell that Jin gets her uh, apathetic attitude from her parents. Not that her parents are apathetic people about everything. It's just to them the wars or the the galactic conflicts 
um, and the idea of people very far away on other planets fighting a war does not seem to affect them. Uh, they are unconcerned with the events of the galaxy. They are so focused on their work and their little family that when the war finally does come and they have to run, it's like a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about Galen and Lyra as they're explored in these early chapters. Um, I, something that I noticed and that I, I kind of loved is that throughout all of chapter one, it does not say the words Lyra is pregnant. <laughs> not one time does it mention it's hinted at. Um, and at one point it says, like when Lyra is running away, she she thinks about how much harder running away is now than it used to be. But she doesn't say, because I have a baby in me. <laughs> um, she just is pregnant. And that's just how, how she is. She's fully capable. She even, in, in descriptions of her, they, they call her... Um, they say she's every bit her husband's equal in appeal. It, the The book spends a lot of time talking about how good looking Galen and Lyra both are and <laughs> how a, true. appealing they are. Um, and, uh, and, and Lyra is heavily pregnant, like heavily pregnant in this first scene while they're trying to reach a, you know, a, a ship to escape yeah. off planet. The timeline is a little fuzzy, but she's probably a, about seven months pregnant because i remember galen saying um oh well it's about two months until she's expected to give birth so you know that's that's not nothing she is very pregnant she, yeah she's she's super pregnant and she's still every day at work helping galen do his work and so galen is kind of the epitome of the absent-minded professor trope he seems to be um very airy, very kind of spacey for, um, you know, to use a good pun. Um, <laughs> he's, he uh, is disorganized. He's messy. He has trouble communicating. He has trouble making eye contact. He has trouble, um, you know, working with other people. And Lyra is, is so smart and so good at her, her work. Um, but her work seems to have become helping Galen do his work. She's uh, She takes notes for him. She writes things down. She organizes his paper. Uh, if he's gone quiet and weird, he she's there to tell his co-workers what's up, you know. And, and that's a, a complicated kind of thing to have the, the woman in the relationship be the one that's like, oh, my only job is to look after her my husband my, my brilliant but misunderstood husband it's a little it's a little <laughs> rough um it is i i would say that the way that this novel navigates that is that it gives lyra uh indispensable skills that support what she and galen want to build right yes so like galen would foolishly throw his life away and fight for his silly little crystal growing project lyra <laughs> has actually thought out how to escape um and is much more kind of she's she's an action archaeologist yes she's <laughs> like that's like, her whole deal she's like actual indiana jones like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he she is all about 
um, you know, a good sturdy pair of shoes and hiking into the unknown and finding and exploring things that need finding and exploring. And Galen's a, a little bit more, uh, I need to stay in this lab or I'll trip over my own feet kind of right. thing. Yeah, his he, he describes his steps over the course of this this first section as churning. Like he's... <laughs> He's useless over land. He's useless over land. <laughs> like, it's true. He's got the wrong shoes. He's not properly equipped. He's not training. Lyra is doing that stuff. You know, she's And she's, she's pregnant. Yeah, and she's pregnant. Or later in the later in the book, spoiler alert, she gives birth to a baby named Jin. Weird. Um, you know, <laughs> later in the book she's looking after Jin and also maintaining plan B and plan C and plan D. And just kind of making sure that this dream of staying safe and avoiding the larger galactic conflict uh, can continue. Yes. And that that is crucial work. It just looks like, ugh, this this poor woman is stuck supporting her eccentric genius husband. I don't I don't find it to be like that. Their relationship is much deeper than that. But on the outside, that that is how it can look. Exactly. Like from from the top you might think that this is a problematic relationship, but the longer you read and the more you explore these characters, the the easier it is to see how well suited they are for each other. Is it in chapter two when they start talking or where we get the backstory about uh, how they met? Is that chapter uh, two? It's a little bit later because it's actually, um, uh, Krennic remembers Galen telling him about it. Right. You're right. So that's a so, little, a little later. We'll, it's a little we'll, bit later. They, yeah, they talk about how they met and how it was not necessarily love at first sight, but it was pretty quick, pretty early on that they were, like, made for each other, made to yeah. take care of each other. And there's there's this uh, kind of this kind of insinuation that Lyra had to make all of the moves because otherwise Galen would have just been like, la-di-da-di-da-di-da. Um, <laughs> and that, that it really is her taking the lead in many aspects of their relationship and and you know galen as usual will be off in his own world but also lyra is part of his whole world right and but, and that's so important and in addition something else that, that that they do uh over the course of all of these chapters is uh when it's time to make a call when galen needs to make a call regarding his career or his own imprisonment or <laughs> anything like that, Lyra will not make those decisions for him. She She's like, I will give him all of the information that he needs to know, but at the end of the day, he's the one who has to make the call. And and kind of about about things regarding like his career or or right. something, not about their whole lives. No, she wants but, to be involved in the in the larger life-changing decisions but she also recognizes that galen is autonomous and despite his eccentricities he deserves that agency exactly uh, and and when he expresses that a decision is hard for him to make to her she doesn't say well i'll make it for us then she says well you gotta make a choice uh and that that is what happens in chapter two so they escape temporarily uh the the um it's there was a regime change right on yeah. on vault and you know some people come to capture galen because he's a, a valuable prisoner um 
And so they temporarily escape, only to be caught eventually. And then they're both thrown in separate prisons. Galen into an icy, minimalistic cell. And Lyra into a basically a bedchamber where she's under house arrest because she's so pregnant. Yes. Um, and that separates them. And that's when, yeah, he writes a letter, one of the only letters he's written to Lyra in years, according Aww. to Lyra. And she cries um, about it. Where, where so he's good. like, what should I do? I I drop all of my beliefs for you to keep you safe. Yeah, would, he says I, I would... will confess to being a separatist spy or a republic spy if it means that we could that we could be happy and safe together. I yeah. He, yeah. And so should I do that? And Lyra's like just puts the letter away and is like I can't tell him what to do. Like I'm yeah. not going to tell him to sacrifice everything for me um because that's not fair. And, and it, it, it wouldn't be, but also maybe it would have been the right call is the thing. And that's that's what's so wonderful about their relationship is that, like, she recognizes that it could work. Um, but also that it, it is his call to make. Yeah. Like, he has that agency over his life. And that does mean that they exert agency over each other's lives sometimes. Right. So Galen, so so the regime changed on Vault. Uh, the chancellor or chancellor or the uh, president or whatever of Vault is overthrown, and the person installed in power is a separatist sympathizer, right. and so keeps Galen captive and starts asking questions like, "Do you work for the Republic? Uh, how big is the clone army? Uh, when <laughs> when was the clone army ordered and built?" He starts asking questions like that, and of course Galen doesn't know. Because Galen's right. not political. He, he's faced, yeah, with this choice of, you know, if I say, yes, I work for the Republic, or I'll, I'll work with you, the Separatists, if it means I can be with my family. But he doesn't do either of those things. He sticks to his, his pacifist convictions. Right. He believes that war is bad, universally bad, and that the deaths of innocent people on innocent planets is 100% unacceptable. Therefore, he will, even if it means saving his own skin and being with his wife again, he he's not going to do it. He's not going to say anything. And that's really remarkable. Um, and, like, like, even though we know him as, like, an absent-minded scientist, the fact that he has such powerful principles means that he's a that he's truly is a good man it also makes his lying about being a loyal member of the empire later in like rogue one it makes that really um remarkable too so you see how far he's he's gone from being unwilling to lie um because of those principles to after everything's taken away from him and he doesn't have his family anymore, he is like, okay, now I'm ready to lie. Now I now I will lie and pretend that I'm working with the Empire if it means saving my family. And, yeah, and, and it yeah. speaks to how desperate of a situation he recognizes he's in. Exactly. Because, like, he can be in a cell unable to see his pregnant wife and soon-to-be-born child and still hold fast. Yes, he but... sees the situation he's in after the beginning scene of Rogue One. After, as, after his wife's been killed in front of him and he doesn't know where his kid is. Right. He sees that as, okay, now it's time to sacrifice everything so that maybe one right thing can be done because of all of this. Exactly. Um, so after spending a couple of chapters with the Ursos on Vault, um, when we move on to chapter three... 
we start spending more time with Orson Krennic. Young Orson Krennic. At this point, a lieutenant commander, I believe. And and as lieutenant commander, he has um, kind of wormed his way from this futures program that he and Galen were in um, into the Republic Corps of Engineers, where he did all sorts of normal engineering work. But see, now that the Second Battle of Geonosis has happened and the Republic has, quote unquote, recovered the plans to the Death Star uh, that were <laughs> held by Poggle the Lesser in Attack of the Clones. Maybe you remember that critical I, uh, shot. Um, I sure do. You know, now the Republic is like, well, if the Separatists were working on something like this, no. we've got to build one. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so it's... Krennic is involved in the secret weapons program. It is so wild to sit back here and think about how Palpatine's playing both sides. He's playing chess alone. Um, and think <laughs> that, yeah, when you say that the the plans were quote-unquote recovered what you mean is is that palpatine goes ah, i'm tired of dooku handling this it's time for the republic to handle this <laughs> yeah um i actually highlighted a part um in chapter three where it says it was supreme chancellor palpatine himself who had presented the schematic to the strategic advisory cell at oh, the yeah. second briefing <laughs> But in fact, the battle station wasn't a product of Republic research and development. It had originated with the Separatists. The captive Geonosian leader, Poggle the Lesser, maintained that Count Dooku had provided Poggle's hive with the basic plans and that the Geonosian had merely refined them. So Palpatine himself <laughs> he, gives he drew, them to Dooku, who gives them drew, to the Geonosians. He drew a ball with a dish on it on a napkin and was like, <laughs> turn this into a weapon. And Dooku was like, yes, my master. And uh, then, yeah, it's pretty then good he, impressions. Thank you. And then he brought it to Poggle the Lesser, who made a series of clicks and chirps, indicating that, yes, he would refine these designs. And then when the Battle of Genosis is over, um, <laughs> and Palpatine just, goes, you know what? No, hold on. Yeah, no, this is <laughs> this is Republic business now. I'm going to make the Republic handle this instead. <laughs> um, and personally hands over the schematics to the strategic advisory cell. Absolutely wild. Absolutely and wild. I what I love is one one criticism I have often heard of Rogue One is that it undoes that part of Attack of the Clones, right? <laughs> Where Poggle yeah. holds up a little hologram of of uh, the Death Star and is like, we can't let them discover these plants. <laughs> Which is honestly one of Honestly, one of the most outright outrageous foreshadowing moments in the prequels. Almost as bad as like that poster where Anakin's shadow, shadow looks like Darth looks Vader. Like Vader. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that bad. Yeah. Um so like on one hand, I like the the story of Galen and Jin and the Death Star way better than oh yeah, like Poggle made this. <laughs> uh some dude named Poggle. Yeah, no, instead it's it's pal it's it's a bunch of people working together to be like we need a weapon. Actually, another thing I highlighted on here was uh, just a couple pages later. That said, following the Naboo crisis of just 11 years ago, Republic Special Weapons Group developed plans for an automated battle moon asteroid. So it's like um like from the beginning from the Naboo crisis. So now we know it takes place exactly a, a, 11, 11 years, years after, after Phantom Menace. 
after Phantom Menace. And that from the beginning, from from that moment, they were like, we need some kind of, of automated asteroid. We need some kind of space station that can handle defense. Yeah. And it was really just Palpatine and then Dooku and then Poggle and then back to Palpatine and then and then Krennic and then Galen in that order. Yeah. <laughs> of the people who are like equipped to actually make these plans come to reality. Yeah. Um really really interesting. Yeah, uh, you know, to talk about that timeline for a second. I haven't read a Star Wars book in a minute. Um and there are fully uh two and a half pages of timeline in yeah. this book yeah. uh, in the front matter where where it's telling me exactly where among uh tv shows movies and other books uh this takes place which is absolutely wild um i i in any other series might have gone okay yeah not i'm not gonna read this <laughs> um because i'm so aware of the period of about 50 years that we watch over the course of the Star Wars films uh, in that universe and the history there, it's not a huge problem for me. Uh, but, wow, is that a long path for what is essentially a retcon, right? Right. Um, and I, I feel like that is a danger sometimes in these in these Star Wars extended universe novels um that they they run the risk of getting too complex i like it because it actually fixes a plot hole just a little right uh and it gives us a sense of what exactly the priorities were that allowed the death star to even be conceived of and built exactly uh, and the answer is palpatine wants one um <laughs> and, yeah. and that's honestly a fine answer it's it's that if if this line here about the Naboo crisis is the is truly what inspired it, it's that Palpatine's planet was threatened by a blockade, and then he went. You know what would be awesome is if we had something to not have that happen anymore. Right. And if we could have our own big ship in space that couldn't that could just beat any blockade. And of course, he had. Even at that point, even during the Phantom Menace, he had, you know, bigger aspirations and bigger, like, uh, ambitions. But really, if it started with the Naboo crisis, it really did just start with, I need to defend my planet. Like, yeah. and and that is, like, just the smallest little detail. It's, it's really easy to forget that Palpatine comes from Naboo um, and that this is what kicked off everything. Right, um, and and it's it's his it's the pretense for a lot of his actions. Yeah, um, it, the pretense being the key word here. I mean, does he does he really care about Naboo? He's he's a Sith Lord who is now Supreme Chancellor. Like <laughs> he's gonna say like, oh, just like when Naboo was under attack, we need Master Jedi. I need to invest more money in creating a meh meh meh, and like <laughs> fine. Palpatine, but we know that you're just trying to create a big gun so you can be number one Sith. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's just it's interesting to track, like it is to track the history of the the Death Star through the hands of all of these people. It's interesting to track the history of the Death Star back to where Palpatine was born, like yeah. where it all started. Yeah, I I think it's honestly one of the cooler parts of the book to to watch how the Death Star is coming together and how tough it is for the Death Star to come together. And we'll, we'll be back at that. But by the end of Chapter 3, uh, 
Krennic has realized that there's one man that he can get involved that will make him look really good. You see, at this point, Krennic has one ambition. Uh, and that ambition is to move up the ranks within this special secret weapons group um, so that he can sit closer to Palpatine's uh, assistant, Ameta. Sincerely one of the most minor of characters. And Krennic just wants to sit closer to him yeah. uh, so that he can feel more influential. Yeah, Krennic's whole thing during these these chapters here is slow and steady wins the race. Right. Right? Like, Krennic is like, if I slowly show them how influential I am and how how smart I am and how important I can be, just by getting closer and closer and closer and closer, I'll overhear the right conversation or get the right segue into, into showing off how good I am. And I can do that if I am physically nearby. It's a... It's honestly, it's kind of a genius idea. He isn't trying to be obvious about his ambitions, but he's trying to have it happen like organically so that it's kind of like he's he's almost like incepting the idea into their head, <laughs> like inception. It's like, um, I gave you the idea to promote me, but you think it was your idea to promote me kind right. of thing. And, and how could you not promote me when I'm just so good? At giving you good ideas. Um, which exactly. Is, Krennic's, Krennic's whole deal is, look at me, look at me, aren't I brilliant? And one thing that this book takes pains to immediately impress upon its readers is that Krennic is brilliant. Not in the way that uh, Galen is. You know, Galen sees poetry and equations or whatever. Krennic sees people at a level of detail that is beyond most people's understanding. Krennic has an, an incredible emotional uh, intelligence that he uses to manipulate. And his main problem, what keeps him from being truly successful in using that skill, is that he's kind of just a, a dummy, though. <laughs> he's he's uh, brash and overbearing, and it's, like, always clear when he's self-satisfied. Like, when he's like, aha, I've done it. I got you to say what I wanted you to say. Like, it's always clear to everybody he's talking to that he is kind of a manipulative, like, little dude, right? Yeah. But at the same time, he is very good at it. And he's also, you know, a brilliant designer and architect in his own right. So, you know, people just don't like him because they see right through him, even though he sees further through them. And so that's what he's trying to leverage in all of his chapters. Exactly. And so he decides by the end of, of chapter three that he needs Galen Erso as another piece of leverage he can use to advance his career. Exactly. So he makes plans or he... He makes plans to get Urso by s sort of, but not really, getting permission to go rescue Galen Urso. <laughs> he he gets uh, reprimanded for it later um, when they're like, "We didn't tell you that you can go use government funds to go get him," and he's like, "Yeah, but you didn't not tell me that I could you use." You told government me to do funds? what I needed to do and to not make a big deal out of it. Did you want me to make a big deal out of it? <laughs> And yeah, and that's that's kind of the the sick twisted genius of Orson Krennic. 
so what happens next? Well, chapter four, um, something really not not that important, kind of trivial happens. Uh, Jin Urso is born. Jin Urso is born. She's uh, officially a citizen of Vault, having been born there. Uh-huh. Uh, and her birth is a occasion of great celebration uh, for the Vaultians, or the, or the Valti, as they are called the in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, not only is it rare for a, a human baby to be born on Vault, uh, but also they actually kind of love the Ursos. Yeah. Uh, a recurring theme is that they have ingratiated themselves with the locals, and, you know, Galen kind of likes his captors, and his captors kind of like him, and they all realize that you know, were the circumstances not what they are, they could be friends. Yeah. Uh, his his and- captors are uh, people or uh, Vaulty that he has been working alongside, too. Like, uh, the Vaulty that he is around all the time are are those who have have spent time. He's been they've been on Vault for like a while. Yeah. And um, and they know their family and they celebrate the birth of their child and it's really sweet i find it really important here this is the 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 part of this chapter that i find really important is um that Jin or so is born in a prison yeah i think this completely informs her character and her circumstance and it also flashes immediately to the beginning of rogue one we first meet grown-up Jin or so in a prison. And yeah, she was born in a prison. You could think like, oh, she doesn't, you know, like how, how much would that have informed her if she if she was just a baby and doesn't remember? Sure. But that kind of thing can really leave an impression on somebody. And like to be born in captivity because of a war that she didn't ever sign up for. It's just really, it's, it's really sad that that is something that appears to stick with her forever. That yeah. kind of that she's kind of lost and and held captive by things beyond her control for her entire life, even from from the day she's born. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of sets us up to understand that Jin Urso's neutral state, her her state of rest when she's not doing cool things and saving the rebellion and saving the dream, is to be captive or to be on the run between being captive yeah um and actually that's that's true of the film right because we meet her in that way as a captive of the empire we would call that in like in like storytelling or screenwriting even we would call that her state of stasis right her her normal life in her world is to be captured right yes what incites a conflict for her is being rescued so that is the intrusion on her stasis. It's what causes her to take action, what causes her to leave her normal state. And eventually she struggles until she dies because of that inciting incident of K2 and uh, Cassian yeah. actually interrupting this cycle of her life that was, for her, totally normal. Back one further... Um, Saw Guerrera rescuing her from the underground vault where she's hiding after losing her parents. Just another prison. Just you know, just another, another place to wait and hope that the conflict doesn't reach you. Exactly. And unfortunately, just like her parents, she is doomed to have the conflict 
the larger conflict, the galactic conflict, chase her. And it's because the Ursos are all destined for greatness, actually. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're amazing. They're, they're brilliant people um, who have this entire larger world foisted upon them when they want nothing to do with it. Right. And so also in Chapter 4 is uh, Krennic commandeers a smuggling ship. <laughs> Krennic's mean. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's really mean to this smuggler guy that he takes hostage. The, the, I didn't highlight this, but the line kind of at the end of the chapter is that when he says, um, well, pick a planet that you want your remains sent to. Like, <laughs> like you can, you can uh, cooperate with us. We're the Republic. We're the good guys, by the way. Uh, or you can die here now. <laughs> and I, I will ship your body wherever you want. <laughs> and, you know, as the good guys would. Uh, it, it's interesting to me how different the Republic and the Empire are for Krennic specifically. And how different they are is uh, not at all. Uh, <laughs> the Republic and all of their finery and their their being upstanding and siding with the Jedi and being on the side of the good... Um, is exactly like the Empire for somebody like Krennic. It's just a bank of resources that he can draw from and aim to be able to draw more from. Uh, and so when he gets his own little command to go on his little rescue mission, he just immediately starts acting like he is in control of the arm of the Republic and can do whatever he wants. So right. poor Hasso bit. <laughs> uh it just has to be like all right um i guess <laughs> and and krennic's like good job you're you're really doing a great job here and at the end he says that haas has hit the big time yep like welcome welcome to the real conflict haas you're you're now part of the the real thing um you know krennic is always trying to get people to realize that what he wants from for them is actually good for them uh even if it's not that's something that he wants people to think um and it's interesting how he swings between oh i'm just curious about your little smuggling operation too i will burn you to a crisp right here and now <laughs> to ah we're friends right this is gonna be great we're gonna we're gonna do great <laughs> it's so manipulative um, and that really he, is his flavor like that yeah that's what he's about he's so fake and he's so, so fake. <laughs> chapter five is the mission um because they they go to this other planet there are so many planets in this book it's almost like it takes place like in the stars instead of like on a planet so they go from planet to planet doing things <laughs> Uh, they go to this new planet, uh, Merge, right? Yeah. Where there's this separatist research base. Um, and with a small group of Republic commandos and the help of Hasso Bit, they uh, capture a couple of them, uh, a couple of uh, separatist researchers, kill a couple more, and make a daring escape. It's actually very Star Wars. It's very Star Wars. And Krennic's like hand on the blaster involved in the action this is not yeah. at this point in his life he is not a man who lets things happen around him he is like in in on it later you watch the death trooper shoot down lyra in um you know at the beginning of rogue one and krennic doesn't himself fire the blaster he lets somebody else do it but at this point in his life and his career he is like i will i it if you want something done right, do it yourself, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, essentially. And and he he gets down and dirty on the ground level of this assignment, I think because um he kind of he kind of craves that danger too. Uh like he he wants he has he has rudimentary military training. Like he wants to be part of it, but he he wants to be in charge the whole time. Like he's the worst kind of boss. He's a micromanager. Yep. He can't just send a team in and expect this to go right. He wants to be part of it. And being there does help the mission. He he, you know, knows when to call it off and make a break for it instead of trying to just, you know, sneak their way through. Yeah, um, and he knows how to improvise when like when, when they're trying to hide the um or yeah, put the bodies they, they away hide the like scientists in uh in uh these what are they? The the levitating crates. Right. But one of them doesn't fit and he's like you know, he, he doesn't phase him. He's just, you know, he's all about improvising. Yeah, just fold him up. <laughs> fold him up, put him in there. You know, he's 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 quick. Um, yeah, that's it's a pretty crazy little um, little expedition they have. Very action packed. Very Star Wars. Uh, but my favorite line from this chapter is we do get to spend a little bit of time with with Galen and Lyra. Uh, Galen gets to hang out with Jin for the first time since the since her she was born, right? Or, yeah. Yeah, and um, and he says, she's beautiful, he said, inspecting her face. Her eyes have changed color. Lyra nodded. They're sort of flecked. Stardust, Galen said. That's what's in her eyes. Stardust. Stardust. Isn't it's, it's remarkable. It's, uh, it's, it's noted in the book that it's remarkable that Lyra had Galen's baby. That that yes. is not exactly common, especially among uh, Coruscanti intellectuals. Right. Who might hire a surrogate? They they tend to hire surrogates to carry their children for them, um, and and that and Galen says, well, not on the Coruscant that I know. Like Galen seems to be uh, maybe a little more grounded, or hangs out with more grounded people. Yeah. Or is completely unaware of how the <laughs> how people on Coruscant live. Uh, yeah. Probably both. Um, but yeah, the fact that like that kind of technology exists that like somebody else would carry carry the baby and so you don't have to do that like burden um is very it's very bougie. It's very like fancy fancy ladies of the high republic, you know, like or the height of the republic. You know, it's it's very yeah. um and, but that but Galen and Lyra are more down to earth and more grounded and and like very very much in love and the act of carrying the child and and raising it together is something that is like uh, like really important to them yeah and and that galen is so immediately taken with the role of fatherhood for jen yeah um and that he he sees beauty in everything about her is is really profound and and very good for for this story i think yeah yeah that's a good chapter yeah, and, and so by the end of the chapter, uh, Galen and Lyra are mysteriously moved out of their, their various cells, and a ship descends, and it looks like it's a Zerpin Industries ship, but no, that's Orson Krennic. It's Orson Krennic, uh, and they're so shocked when he appears. Yeah. They're like, is that Orson Krennic? No. <laughs> that guy? No, it couldn't be. We haven't talked in years! And <laughs> nope, it's Orson, and he's so stoked to see his old friends again, or at least that's how he's acting. I think um, he is. I think I think he's ju- not just stoked to see his old friends again, um, but I think he's just really excited that the plan is coming together. 
Like, he is so proud of himself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he did a little bit of daring do. And you've got to imagine that for Orson, especially because so much for him is riding on the return of the Ursos, uh, that he's just stoked in general. Yeah. But where where he finally reveals, or, like, when, when the ship, like, reseals itself and takes off, and he reveals, like, ah, it was me all along, my friends, oh, my God, and they all hug... And you're like, this is this is actually like a, a pretty good Star Wars moment too, like, I, I like two thirds of the trio getting saved by the other third of the trio, like, that's Star Wars as heck. Yeah, you could see Galen and Krennic and Lyra in another timeline going on fun Star Wars adventures. Yeah, uh, and you you can believe it. The problem is, I I don't ever believe Krennic. When he does stuff like this. And it's because by the end of the chapter, he he takes Galen to his home planet yeah. to watch it get bombarded uh, from space by both Republic and Separatist ships. Yeah. And he says, he says, Galen, I'm just showing you reality, man. Like, this is, this is just how war is. Innocent planets just get bombarded sometimes. Doesn't that make you wish you could help and and Galen's like no no this no, just this, makes me sad this makes me hate war more my dude yeah it, it totally didn't didn't work the way Krennic wanted and he gets kind of gets kind of salty about it yeah um but he's not discouraged entirely he's like I will I will make this work I have decided that Galen is the man for the job and darn it, it he will be whether he wants to or not yeah so they go to Coruscant. They do, and what what ends up happening is, for for months, Galen and Lyra are languishing on Coruscant. They're they're just totally bored. They're given like a little apartment and you know a, a stipend maybe I don't know. They're they're given kind of the basics, but they're essentially still under house arrest. Um, they you know they can go outside a little bit. Lyra takes Jin for walks, you know, but it's, it's, um, it's basically a, we're going to hold you here until we figure out what to do with you. It's like when a, when a, when a cop on Law and Order or something says, don't leave town, you yeah. know, it's, it's like that. And, and that's really like dangerous and stressful for them. Um, yeah. but I wanted to talk about in chap in chapter six now, um, there's like the, this one passage that I wanted to read that I think is like really important for understanding Lyra. Yeah. Um, we get, Lyra gets to shine a little bit as not just like a mom or a partner in this, in this, uh, in this passage. Um, she says, or it says for her governments of any stripe would have their constituents believe that they were attempting to remove chaos from the galaxy, that they were trying to make things perfect when only the force was perfect. For ordinary beings, life was a constant interplay between order and chaos, day and night, light and dark. Her reverence for the force had evolved from an enduring love of nature. Yes, she thought of herself as agile and strong and intuitive, but she understood that her skills were a far cry from those attributed to the Jedi. She did, however, embrace the Order's philosophy of generosity, compassion, and peaceful resolution, and on many a far-flung world she had experienced moments in nature that could only be described as transcendent. 
It was certainly possible that those peak moments had their basis in belief and emotion, but that hardly mattered. Even if she wasn't able to use the force, she could at least feel it, and she was content with that. Now what remained to be seen was whether the force was indeed strong enough to overcome the powers of evil that had swept the Republic into a galaxy-spanning conflict. Lyra is yeah. a deeply religious person in in this way, in the way that that people who believe in the force can be. Yeah, she she seeks the sublime in her life, right? She wants those moments of like like in the last Jedi where um where Rey is meditating on the rock and she is able to feel, you know, the island, life, death, cold, but also love, right? Yeah. And death all at the same time and that balance that like sublime moment of understanding the balance that the force can bring and that that utter tranquility despite conflict is so important to Lyra yeah and that she feels it so deeply and so truly despite not harnessing the force for herself I think points to like yeah like a, a level of force sensitivity that we might maybe call something like a, like a Chiridimwe, right? Yeah, it's Who... entirely possible that she, with a little training and a little guidance, could be like Chirid. Or she could, you know, dodge bullets and, um, and you know, fight blind if she needed to. Yeah. Um, that she has that connection with the world around her and cares so deeply about finding it and expressing compassion and love for all living things yeah um it's it's remarkable that they give us this that they they let us see into her mind for a second and like her understanding of not just what she cares about but also of her own limitations and her own like self-awareness she yeah. is a, an inspiration she's a a, a a role model. I love her. I love spending time with just Lyra and her, her very sense of self, her, her awareness of the world around her and, and how like secure and confident and self-aware she is. Um, it's just, it's really remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually I really like this chapter because Lyra gives us a little bit of insight of her opinion of Krennic too. Yeah, uh, she's not Krennic, into it. <laughs> Krennic, who has become a central figure in their lives, and that Lyra feels indebted to partially, but also, like, this is a bit of an intrusion as well, right? Like, um, and so I've got this this chapter, or this, I've got this passage here. Uh, Though Lyra never saw it, Galen insisted at every turn that Orson was as bright and talented as anyone in the Futures program. And she still found it difficult to picture them as friends. One who had to be dragged to parties and events, and the other whose nocturnal carousing had become legendary in the program. Ooh. I'll let you figure out which one caroused nocturnally, because <laughs> it wasn't Galen Urso, a <laughs> uh, certified uh, awkward guy, um, though he is devastatingly handsome. He is devastatingly uh, handsome. And just according would to not this, be interested. According to this, Lair said uh, she had made the first move, but he had gotten the hang of things very quickly. <laughs> and all at once, she occupied the center of his world. She had blazed a path to his heart, and in doing so, had allowed Galen to realize that, in fact, he had one. Yeah. It, for, for, for Galen and Lyra, it is about the fact that they can be that for each other that like Lyra opens him up but also that 
she believes in everything that he is. Yeah. Um, and that those two things together bring a sort of balance, which seems right for Lyra because that's what she seeks. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So in chapter seven, we get to spend a little bit more time with Orson Krennic, who gets uh, permission or perhaps just uses his influence and rank to get some time alone with one of my personal standout characters in this portion of this novel. Um, he will die by the end of this, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> but we get to spend some time with the infamous Poggle the Lesser. The real Poggle the Lesser? The Poggle, Poggle is the here. Lesser? Everyone is here. Oh, goodness gracious. And I just, I love that Orson does whatever he can to ingratiate himself to Poggle. He learns some Geonosian, uh, which is very hard for a human mouth to do. And, and he, he does a pretty bad job of it. He does a is... pretty bad job, but, but that like puts Poggle off his guard, right? He's like, wow, and, nobody even tries that. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then he convinces Poggle to switch, switch alliances, basically. You know, Dooku gave you a raw deal. You know, you got captured and nobody has come to rescue you. Nobody has even called to say, hey, can we have Poggle back? And here's what <laughs> we'll give you. Instead, they just let him languish in a Republic prison on Coruscant. Poggle is a high-value target, a great engineer, and the leader of a hive of Geonosians, which is virtually limitless in its population if it wants to be right and it's uh, dedication to work and getting and it's done. dedication to work like th there's this exploration of what it is to be geonosian in these chapters where it's like no you don't understand if we don't have a job we, we hate life literally kill each other yeah we'll kill each other until we get jobs <laughs> like we need tasks we need to be given things to do and it doesn't really matter who we're doing them for. Uh, we just need to be doing work that we consider of our station. Uh, and so Krennic is like, great, you want to keep building that Death Star? And Poggle <laughs> is like, yeah, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> uh, and it's honestly one of, one of the better Krennic moments in terms of like, you see his brilliance. Yeah. You know, he's dealing with this, this being that is completely alien to him. But he's done the research and he knows how to read Poggle a little bit. And he knows a little bit of what Poggle values and wants. And he's able to extrapolate that into a big move. Which is, Geonosis will be the place where most of the Death Star is manufactured. Um, and that's really good for him. Like, wow, go for it. Um, and then there's the back half of the chapter when Krennic meets with Galen. That's my. This is my, one of my favorite parts in this whole section. Um, when Krennic meets with Galen, and Galen <laughs> has said to Lyra uh, in chapter six, I think he's like, he's like, I have an idea where I'm going to save Krennic's life this time. And he's like, I have an idea that will just Krennic will be. Uh, he's like, I don't know how to thank Krennic enough for saving us from jail. I think I can do it if I tell him my really good idea. And Krennic is like, I think that really good. Galen's going to come to me and tell and tell me he wants to work for the Republic. Right. Th that's how he can repay me. That's what Krennic is like. Galen will be so guilty uh, and like feel so indebted to me that he'll come work for me. 
And, and that's that's part of Krennic's limited imagination. That, exactly. Like, that's what that's what he would do, right? But he's like, oh, if you do a favor for me, I have to do a favor for you. Exactly. Galen is too principled for that to be true about him. So instead, Galen's like, yeah, I got this really this great idea for a business. I have a really good idea. You and I should go into business together. And Krennic's <laughs> like, what? It's incredibly naive of Galen. Um, so cute. It's so sweet it, that that's what he honestly, thinks is going to save it, the day. It betrays, it betrays this level of friendship that Krennic just doesn't feel. Um, and yet... And yet... Uh, there, there's this great passage that you, you, you picked out. Yes, this is my, one of my favorites maybe from the, from the whole section. I, I've said that a hundred times already, but I love this part. Um, it says, Krennic was speechless. For a brief moment, he glimpsed a new destiny opening before his eyes, a window into a future he had never imagined for himself, a path to an entirely different life. And yet, just as quickly as the window opened, it closed, slammed shut as much by long years of training as by a feeling of trepidation. So Galen says, come work with me. Let's start our own business and study what we want to study and do what we want to do. And Krennic goes, yeah, like maybe I could do that. What if I just left and made things happen for my own self? And then years of training, it says long years of training. So like what brainwashing from the Republic? Like years uh, almost, and years. Almost certainly it was, it was just like, basic training like it was it was the the military stuff that he had to do in order to even become lieutenant commander just slams that idea shut altogether totally like you said a lack of imagination on krennic's part like this is where where it kicks in even further he just goes no like i, I could never imagine doing anything like that that's not where my path lies right he doesn't have the you know the strength of character to you know, to open himself up to that possibility. Yeah. Um, it's it's wild to me and such, such an interesting part of this. It honestly, it reminds me of, like, the throne room scenes in the various Star Warses where somebody could be turned. Yes. Right? Come um, with me. Join the dark side. Join the light side. Whatever it is that they're trying to convince. Come with me and start an energy production facility that can power an entire sector. It's the same energy as come with me and we'll rule the galaxy as father right. and son. <laughs> right. Like, Krennic, thank you so much for saving my life. Now let's go. And Krennic says no. And I, I think it's it's two things. Yes, it's the training. It's the fact that he feels like he has a sure thing here. He's worked so hard to get this rank. Right. But right. also, it's it's betrayed a little bit earlier when Lyra is thinking about Krennic. People don't appreciate Krennic's brilliance. No. Only Galen gets him. Exactly. And and you would think that would mean, oh, Galen, you're the only one who understands me. Of course, let's go build this power plant you want to build. Um, but instead, it's, no, I've scraped for everything I have. I will make them understand, and I don't need Galen for that. I need Galen to make them understand. I don't need Galen so I can go and do my own thing. I my own Galen thing won't be appreciated. Here. I need Galen here to tell everybody else why they were wrong about me all along. He wants Galen right. to help him have revenge on people for underestimating yeah. him. And and then there is that third facet, which is that uh, Orson Krennic is terrible. 
Also, uh, yes, he's a terrible person. Here's here's the part we <laughs> completely skipped. Krennic ordered the bombardment of Vault when he when he uh, rescued Galen. Yeah, it didn't need to be done. You know, he just said, "Oh yeah, there's some battle droids down there. Go ahead and bombard it, Captain." And like, they did, and all of Galen's friends are probably dead. Yeah. Like we we glossed over that because it's such an afterthought for Orson Krennic that it became an afterthought for us. But Galen doesn't let it go, and and that's what what he carries with him through the rest of this chapter is like, Vault's gone. Vault that the vault that I knew. The, it's over. Yeah, the researchers I spent time with, the people who cared for my wife while she was giving birth, like, gone. They're either dead or half of them died, right? Right. Uh, or or they're now occupied Republic space. And how is that better than being occupied by the Separatists? Exactly. Yeah, and it, so, yeah we didn't bring it up. It's hard. It's such an afterthought for Krennic that it's hard to even remember that it happened. Like, I forgot that that's a thing <laughs> that he did. Because it didn't matter to Krennic, because it was in service of his bigger idea. And for Krennic, all means justify the ends, so long as they're the ends that he chooses. Yeah. And so, you know, Galen, after being rebuffed by Krennic, uh, goes to the college, the university. And he's like, well, I got to find some colleagues who will help me, right? I need a job. I'm I'm literally dying from lack of work, like a Geonosian. Like a Geonosian. <laughs> it's he's funny how, from... how that parallel is drawn, actually. It's, it's true. Yeah, he's like, I need something to do. My brain won't settle unless I'm working on something. Is that where they organize the reunion? He goes to the to the college and he meets yeah, some old so... buddies and, and they're like, hey, let's have a reunion party. <laughs> so he meets his old mentor who is like, oh, yeah, everybody's in military now. Aren't you in military? Do you want to join the military? <laughs> Wait, you're not in military? I got to shut my mouth. I can't talk about the things I was <laughs> Oh, my God, I can't believe I was about. talking about somebody non-military um and then she's like hey come to this party a bunch of us are getting together because a bunch of us are shipping out literally like they're these scientists that have been dragged into this conflict but at least there's virtually unlimited research money and they're trying to do something with that exactly um of course, little does she know she's literally working on the Death Star shield, but okay. Yeah, um, yeah, they talk about it. Like, like Galen is like, oh, you're talking about energy? I know so much about energy. You know what you should do is, quote, consider shunting a shield's absorbed energy into a heat sink and then employ neutrino radiators to return energy to the generators and projectors themselves. Hey, Galen? Hey, Galen? <laughs> hey, Galen, uh, you're already writing the Death Star right that's, now. <laughs> that's... First of all, that's... That's the worst kind of Star Wars gobbledygook, like absolute <laughs> techno babble. Um, and then on the other hand, yeah, Galen, you just helped build the Death Star shield. How do you feel? Well, luckily he's gonna go sabotage it soon. <laughs> right, but he he can't he can't not innovate. Is the thing somebody tells him how something works, he's like, well, that could be a little better. Yep. Uh, and that becomes a problem for him later. Maybe multiple shield generators distributed evenly across an entire hull to enhance coverage. He uh -huh, says. Uh -huh. He says. Also, still writing the Death Star. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, come on, Galen. <laughs> you yeah, don't want to be involved. Stop coming up with ideas. It's funny because Krennic Krennic describes what he wants Galen to believe as building the Death Star or what what will eventually be the Death Star. I think they just call it, like, a battle station, right, yeah. at, at the moment. Uh, but building that is his destiny. He wants Galen to be like, I have to do this. This is the only project that matters. And it's funny how, 
I mean, like, yeah, he's being manipulated a little bit by Krennic and by just the circumstances. He keeps accidentally building parts of the Death Star. <laughs> like, it, it's just, that's just what he's doing. He's just kind of enabling it. Like, it is kind of his destiny. In Chapter 8, Krennic gets in trouble with Vice Chancellor Masameda mm -hmm. for uh, glassing the surface of Vault. <laughs> Hey, um, yeah. Hey, hey, maybe you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> in order to rescue the Ursos, sure. And then Masameta is like, okay, so is Galen Urso working for us? And Krennic <laughs> is like, actually, no. Not, but give it time. Not yet. I swear, <laughs> though. I promise, though. I swear, though. I swear. Give it, give it a little bit of time. And, and Masameta is like, so you... You pulled a couple of Star Destroyers out of their usual patrols to glass a planet... We didn't even get a scientist out of it. <laughs> like, is there any leverage you can get on this guy? And he's like, well, getting leverage isn't really what will work <laughs> on Galen, like, which is he, true. He's not that it kind of guy. Yeah, it, you can capture his wife and kid and try to make that your leverage, but it's bigger than that for him. Yeah. Which is interesting because nothing is bigger than Jin and uh, Lyra. But also... In this case, he knows a ploy when he sees one. And exactly. he's not going to fall for that trap. So Krennic knows that Galen has to arrive at service to the Republic somehow. Of course, he never will, which is wild. He won't ever serve the Republic itself. In in this chapter, in chapter 8, I highlighted two, two sections here that talk about, that, that are about what, what Krennic thinks about Galen. Um... Because we get a little bit into Krennic's mind of, like, what he th actually thinks about their friendship here. Um, uh, it says, uh, little by little, however, he came to appreciate Galen not only for his intellectual superiority, but also for his unique spirit. That's not something you just say about someone you don't, you weren't ever friends with, right? Like, he, like, Krennic, I think, really does care about Galen and, like, knows and understands him. Um, just like he says, you know, when they first met at school, he says um, he became fascinated by the prodigy from Grange and on a couple of occasions had been Galen's protector in fights or brawls. It's so funny to imagine Orson Krennic, middle manager, <laughs> as the one who's standing up to bullies uh, to fight for Galen Urso, rugged, handsome action scientist. Right. Um, but, like, when they were young, when they were, yeah. like, kids, yeah, you see, like, a like a young, nerdy little child prodigy getting picked on, and Orson Krennic, in his, like, ambitious and constantly aware mind, he, you know, he's like, I know that the thing to do is to stand up for this kid who's getting picked on. It, it 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 could also have just been like I don't like seeing this kid getting picked on, but you know he you you kind of get the sense that he says I'm gonna defend this kid from being bullied because he's so smart and so capable, like he'd be a an a good ally slash friend. Yeah, there's uh, the word the word fascinated really kind of gets to that right. It's like wow, we we could make a great team or. I could use that. Yes. If he weren't being picked on, I I could be in the same... Like, people like him, too. You know, there, there is a certain popularity that comes with Galen's genius. Yeah. Um, and so that, that actually, like, runs us into this class reunion party that Galen and Lyra go to that Krennic 
also finds himself uh, an invitation to. Uh, <laughs> even though nobody's super excited to see Krennic, everybody loves that Galen Erso has arrived. They're like, oh my god, Galen's back? Oh, oh yeah. Galen, the rock star scientist who disappeared for a year onto a frozen icy planet? Where have you been, man? And you have uh, a kid now? Dang! <laughs> of course, there's also the opposite end of that, and Galen starts to get bullied a little bit by this person who's like, well, why aren't you in military yet? <laughs> yeah, he gets into... He does, doesn't... Galen gets into a fist fight with this guy, which is wild. I'm trying to picture it, but... I can't. I, I can imagine Galen Erso knocking this dude out. Because what what this person, uh, Daigo, I guess, what, what this guy was doing was like, you're a separatist, aren't you? Blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm a military scientist now. You don't got it. But, like, Galen did spend time in the Outer Rim researching kyber crystals. Like, he's not a fighter, but, you know, Lyra's an action archaeologist. He's... A 50% action scientist, right? Like, <laughs> so so that he knows a move to, you know, get under a person's arm while they're punching him and then deliver the knockout punch in one fell swoop is not surprising to me. No, it but is it surprising is intense. To, yeah, no, Galen's awesome, right? It is surprising to Orson Krennic, who was getting ready to do the old, oh, I'll stand up to the bully for you, Galen, thing. Yeah. Um, but he didn't need to. So as soon as Galen throws the punch, Lyra's right there next to him, ready to put her heel through this guy's throat. I think that's literally the quote. I think that's litter, and I think that's not an exaggeration. I'm pretty sure Lyra would have killed that guy for laying hands on Galen. Right. Plants a heel directly onto the Iktochi's forehead. Okay, so not exactly the quote, but you know. This is, a, this is a little censored, a little toned down for Star Wars. She would have killed him. She would have literally uh, killed him. Krennic's right there, like, fists up, like, we're going to do this, right, Galen? Ha-ha, buddy. Um, <laughs> he doesn't need him anymore. Galen has outgrown Krennic and the protection that Krennic used to provide. Uh, and Krennic, I think that's his miscalculation about Galen, is that... Krennic can swoop in and be the hero as many times as he wants, or even fail to do that. Galen doesn't need him. Galen doesn't need what he's offering. And that's what's keeping him from, from being as effective as he wants to be. I believe he says that at one point. I don't remember in which chapter it is. But Krennic says, I guess I, I guess I don't need to fight your battles for you anymore, right? And then Galen says, you never had to. Yeah, Galen wiped the drink from his face and nursed his fist. You never did. Ooh. Galen is devastatingly good looking and good at fighting and has a wife who is, is equally devastatingly good looking and good at fighting. And, and they, he's good at comebacks. <laughs> yeah, and they take they take no prisoners anymore because what they've become is a unit, you know? The two yeah. of them do whatever it takes to preserve that. Um you know, and and that's that explains everything about how they are when Krennic arrives. Uh, to kill Lyra and take Jin, presumably. Exactly. Chapter 9 brings us to Geonosis, where Lieutenant Commander Krennic is observing a Geonosian gladiatorial bloodbath. Uh, of, I guess it goes on for three days. Jesus. It's just Geonosian drones just slaughtering one another wholesale in the arena from Clone Wars, or from uh, Attack of the Clones, rather. Yeah, for and three that's it? days straight. <laughs> 
that's all they do they just kill each other for three days straight and then poggle gets up and is like by the way i'm back uh remember the death star what if we kept building it for the republic and everybody's like boo (laughs) and then he's like there'll be a lot of jobs and everybody's like yay Yay. (laughs) um and krennic is like haha i did it i understand geonosians um of course he doesn't really and also the back half of this chapter is galen meeting galen meets a quote tall man some 10 or 15 years older than galen he had sunken cheeks a highbrow and a look of penetrating intelligence I only know one person can, that can be described that way in all of Star Wars, and that is Wilhuff Tarkin. Tarkin's in the house. Uh, no longer, no longer a governor. But interesting note here: the the title governor. He was governor of his home home planet for a little while. The title of governor stuck with him. Yeah. That's why. That's why Leia calls him Governor Tarkin, even though at uh, that point he is Grand Moff. Um, right, Governor Turkin just seems to have been the title that that stuck. Kind of, well, it's kind of like how, um, like in in American politics, uh, even if you're retired from your from your job, you still get referred to by that job, the highest position that you own. So, like, yeah. Hillary Clinton, for example, still gets called Secretary Clinton because at one point yeah. she was Secretary of State. She's not anymore, but they still use that title as the highest title that you've had sticks forever until you get a higher one right you know i think i think it's a little different than that it's kind of like um this this reference is going to date itself so bad or or maybe it won't who knows who knows if this person will continue to rise in politics but it's kind of like mayor pete Buttigieg. oh yeah he was mayor once and that's like kind of how everybody got to know him he was also a presidential candidate and is now uh, Secretary of Trans- Transportation, I think. Right, Secretary of Transportation for the Biden administration. Like he's more than a mayor now, but you'll still hear people call him Mayor Pete. That's um, you know what you're you're right. That might be like, more accurate. Like Tarkin was a governor when he was a younger man. Now he's an admiral, a, a grand admiral, um, and will eventually rise to the rank of, of Grand Moff. Um, and just be in charge of so many things, including the Death Star. And everybody uh, just rolls with governor. I mean, governor is a pretty high rank, right? Like, if you're yeah. governor of a whole planet, that's, like, pretty. That's, that's a pretty important job. Yeah. Um, and yet, uh, you know, he will rise beyond that station. And what I loved about this conversation is that Tarkin uh, immediately feels a kinship with Galen Erso. Yeah. In, 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 a, in a really kind of warm, genuine way that uh is less it skeeves me out less than than uh galen and krennic together yeah well as warm warm and genuine as as tarkin can be i guess right right? (laughs) yeah like uh you know uh galen you know galen walks into the office and tarkin is like oh you were a prisoner of war what was that like and galen's like i you know i don't know It, it was it was okay and Tarkin's like, yeah, I was a prisoner of war too. Yeah, I was, I was tortured. And Galen was like, wow, they never tortured me. And, and Tarkin is like, it was really terrible, but I was rescued and now here I am. Uh, so Galen, what can I do for you? And, <laughs> and if like, 
if you want to see that story, you can watch The Clone Wars. <laughs> oh, that... yeah, you can see Tarkin get see rescued Tarkin by get... Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, in The Clone Wars. It's a couple of really good episodes. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I just found that interesting, that there's, like, that almost camaraderie and that Tarkin agrees to pull some strings for Galen. Not because he really wants anything out of Galen, but because he, he just kind of feels like, well, this guy doesn't really deserve what he's getting. Um, and also that genuinely helping people is better than whatever Krennic is doing, <laughs> which is helping, helping people just so far as he can manipulate them. Yeah. Galen also leaves this conversation having kind of impressed Tarkin with his own morality, right? Tarkin's right. like, don't you see all this violence and death? Don't you want to help stop it? Exactly the, the play that, uh, Krennic gave him, right? Yeah. And Galen's like, I didn't start this war. Uh, and honestly, it's Palpatine's job to stop it. Like, let the Republic figure this out. I don't need to help them. And Tarkin's like, well, yeah, I guess, but it's not just Pal Palpatine's job. It's my job, too. And so they kind of come to an understanding over that as well. Yeah. Like, we we all have our play part to play, and I respect that you want to stay out of it, but also how could I stay out of it uh and I, I just think that's interesting it's like a it's a good it's a good chapter it was like a like a meeting of the minds like a like great great men in the same room having this conversation like totally unknowing yet how important they're going to be like on opposite sides of the conflict in the future uh, yeah. like like galen's flaw in the system kills tarkin in a new hope right like this i mean there's no way that they could know all of this, but for us looking at it, it's we're seeing these two impossibly important men having just like a regular conversation that feels really, really weighted with the destinies that they hold. Uh, and so brings us to Orson Krennic, uh, not on Geonosis very often, but sometimes traveling down to Geonosis, uh, supervising the construction of the Death Star. Yes. Um, and and already jealous of Tarkin. He hears that Tarkin and Galen met, and he's like, oh, man, uh, ever since Tarkin was captured and rescued, he became this darling. Now everybody <laughs> loves him, and he should be in the program with me. We should be at the same level, but we're not because he got rescued from that stupid separatist facility and ugh, I'm so mad. Anyways, <laughs> as long as I can get to Galen first and prove I'm really his friend, uh, Tarkin won't have any legs to stand on. <laughs> and it's like, oh, Tar oh, Krennic. Uh, Good luck. It's not gonna go well for you. <laughs> yeah. Poor guy. Poor guy. Uh, and like, like already you see that that thing where like Tarkin's in control and just kind of doing what he does and that's working for him and Krennic is thrashing around trying to make his way and get people to notice him and Tarkin's just you know standing calmly and saying you may fire when ready you know like <laughs> it's it's brilliant actually that that relationship before they've even really met uh, is already established like this is always going to be how Krennic looks at Tarkin as somebody who's his better for no reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he hates that. Yeah, he hates that he can't control that. Right. 
but he does he does get an idea while he's thinking about uh this whole thing and it's to it's to do something that poggle did to his drones which was he gave the drones less work and less important work than they're capable of and krennic's like hey if i do that to galen then he'll come crawling back to me because he'll hate it. <laughs> um, and so that sets us up for, for what he's going to do next for Galen. Right. Uh, but actually, we get to spend some some of this chapter with Lyra, who uh, is trying to work out on Coruscant. Um, yeah. Uh, wait, really quick before we move away from, from, uh, from Krennic. And this is uh, chapter 10. He has this, like, passing thought that made me laugh really hard. Where he said, um, how had the fact that the battle station schematics were in Republic hands remained a secret? And the, the passing thought where he's like, surely somebody should have found out by now that we stole Death Star plans from Geonosis, right? <laughs> Amazing. Right, surely the Separatists know where that data was and that we have it. Amazing. Amazing that Palpatine <laughs> got away with his nonsense for as long as he did. Like right, I guess I guess what keeps Krennic from questioning it any further is like, well, of course they did, and and now it's up to us to build one first, and it's like, all right, Krennic, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um. So yeah, and then we spend the the back half of chapter ten with Lyra. Right. Uh. And and Lyra Lyra is just trying to get a, a a nice morning jog in, but she can't find a hallway longer than like ten feet. And it's a bunch <laughs> of moving walkways for lazy Coruscanti, and she's like, I just want to run up a stair. Can I just, can I just run somewhere? Is that cool? And no one wants she, to let her do it. <laughs> she really hates living in a city like Coruscant. Yeah. Where there's no open space and no. There's no real character in Coruscant, right? It, Coruscant is just big buildings, bright lights. And, like, that's it. That's it. For a whole planet. Yeah. And and she hates it. Of course, then she finds herself tailed by somebody. And she she says something at some point in this chapter where she says, um, being pregnant with Jin, especially while in captivity, had made her aware of the Force in a way she imagined the Jedi experienced, a profound connection with life that went beyond mere understanding. Um... Where she's, like, the, and this is what I was saying before about, like, Lyra's genuine self-awareness and, like, situational awareness and everything that, that it's her instincts that come from who she is, but also her belief in the Force, is that when she realizes that she's being followed, she she gets it right away. and She knows exactly what to do. Like, it's um, it's really impressive. Yeah. Uh, and, and that... That idea that for her, uh, pregnancy was a brush with the sublime. Yeah. Like she feels when she's kind of overlooking mountains or whatever. Uh, and that she felt the force in having Jin, uh, carrying and then also birthing and now caring for Jin. That profound connection to everything that she gets out of that is really good. I, I, I like the idea of motherhood being a positive thing. In Star Wars, it so rarely it's is. It's so rare. It, I would say, almost completely non-existent. <laughs> you know, Shmi Skywalker cares about Anakin and, and loves him. Yeah, sure. Shmi Skywalker's also on screen for, like, mm, 20 minutes. Like... Right, and, <laughs> and dies violently because she's separated from her son, you know? Be, by the Jedi. It's so sad. Every, it, every mother story in Star Wars is so 
freaking sad. Even even Baru Lars, who is just a surrogate mother, you know? Like, Dies violently. She is, she is punished for that. And it, it feels like that is also true of Lyra in the opening sequence of Rogue One. It is, for sure. We don't spend nearly enough time with her on screen. And thank goodness for this book, honestly. Right. Uh, because other otherwise, how do we even know that Lyra cares about the Force outside of color theory? <laughs> and one line of dialogue where she says, trust the Force. Um, like, we we get this extra look at her. It's That's what makes this book valuable, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so she's tailed by these two uh, lemur-looking guys. I guess they have long hands and monkey ears. Um, and they're, she's super paranoid about it. And she thinks that, well, is it the Republic? Is it the Separatists? Like, who is it? It's uh, two guys trying to sell her some watches, some fake watches. <laughs> I imagine them uh, ripping open a trench coat and be like, you want to buy some watches? You know, like a classic, a classic story. Um, it's pretty funny. Both of them had their hands hidden, and when they were a meter away, they opened their long coats to reveal cleverly designed displays of rings and necklaces, earrings and bracelets. Uh, you wanna buy some watches? You wanna no, buy it. Say. <laughs> or like in, in a Hercule, you wanna buy a sundial? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to sell me a sundial. Um, and so she, she felt endangered in that moment, and that that's part of what. Um, kind of motivates her i think to agree with galen that they should probably leave coruscant as fast as they can yeah she's already uncomfortable feeling claustrophobic by the being in a city she misses work she misses the outdoors she misses nature and also coruscant just feels like a threat from all angles even if it's just a salesperson like she just feels cornered, and that's not a place for her. Yeah, and so Krennic, you know, goes through with his plan to give uh, Galen work that is below him. He sends him to work for basically the the telephone company, the comm company. Um, <laughs> and Galen's like, yeah, I guess I'm not doing anything else. And so the whole family packs up and moves in Chapter 11 to Lakori, which is a forest planet. Uh, full of bug people. Pretty cool. I, I liked a lot of the descriptions of, of Lakori. Yeah, it was a neat place. It's just <laughs> another planet. Like, like yet another planet. Like okay, here so we go. so many planets. <laughs> I, I really just imagine Yavin 4, except covered in bugs. So if, if anybody else is like me, I just... Like, when they were on uh, Vault, I was just like, oh, so this is just Hoth. Um, and so this is this is just Yavin 4 but with bugs uh which is fine I can I can handle that um and so he's working for Helical Hypercom which is the AT&T of Star Wars uh and he's got this terrible boss uh Galen's like you know if you let me research a little bit we can like up productivity and increase efficiency and get your signal out to more people in the galaxy and his boss is like, listen, Galen, you're here to, to sign one kind of form, and that's all you are. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, you know, that, that felt um, really relatable. Um, <laughs> like, like, being in a job where you, you know that you could, um, like, make, make the job run smoother. I hear this about people who work in, like, with um, software a lot. It's yeah. like, I could just program a different software to be way better than this one, 
and my you know I wouldn't have to do as much work or or you know things would be a lot smoother and easier and then suddenly but you you know you try and tell the boss and the boss is like what do you you know no that's not how we do things here and and make you do things the hard way like that's that's relatable that's that's really I felt I felt for Galen in that moment yeah it, it simultaneously feels like this is a extremely relatable moment for many people who have had a job that they are just a little overqualified for which galen is yep um and it feels like a setup by orson krennic where krennic was like i need you to hire this person and they need to do one thing don't let them do anything else that's part of the deal uh because krennic pulled the strings to get him in there Right. Uh, and so I feel like this this person is so stubborn also because he's under orders to not uh, just accept help. Um, and so uh, we cut back to Krennic, who is watching the Death Star's dish come together. Uh, and that's all they're working on right now. Uh, because Poggle's like, trust me, you have to give them a bad job before you give them the good jobs. Uh, they'll and, be hungry for it. Yeah, they'll be hungry for it. And and Krennic's running out of patience. He's like, "Why is this just the dish being built? We need the, you know, we need the hemispheres to start getting built over here." And he gets a report that uh, Poggle's drones are murdering each other. He's like, "Oh no, why? Uh, why?" <laughs> Uh, and he calls Poggle, and Poggle's like, yeah, nope, this is normal. This is, this is how Geonosians do things. Uh, they're murdering each other to become better workers. Um, and Krennic's like, okay, fine, but keep it quiet. Um, (laughs) and so, we then cut back to the Ursos, and, uh, the planet that they're on, Lokori, is being, uh, bombarded from space again. Apparently, this is a, a common occurrence. Uh, and there is a shield that protects the factory that the Ursos work at, or that Galen works at, and the, the Ursos live near. Um, but the rest of the city is being completely devastated. Right. Uh, and, and they hate this, the Ursos especially, because they've already made friends with all of the locals, and they already love this planet, and they see it as a home, and now they're watching it be destroyed from inside their safe little bubble. Yep. And they, they, they don't like it. No, they don't like it. it, it this also feels, um, like, really intentional. I I, I guess um, Krennic really did find the perfect storm of terribleness to send Galen into to convince him to come join the come join the Republic. He's like, ah, yes, I'll send him to do a job that he hates because he doesn't have any creativity on a planet that gets bombed a lot. So it's not safe for his kid. (laughs) It's perfect. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, on one hand it kind of is. And on the other, you can't, I don't know. I I feel like that, that just another mark against Orson Krennic's idea of what it is to be a friend. Right. Yeah. He wants, he wants things to get so bad for Galen that he can't help himself, but beg to help the Republic. Um, it sucks. It's a bad, and, and what, bad. What friend. we find is that that's that's not the case, though. So, chapter twelve opens with uh, now more of the drones are killing each other, and all of the soldiers that are trying to keep the drones in line have uh, disappeared mysteriously. So it's just a drone <laughs> bloodbath on the Death Star. And Krennic calls Poggle, and he's like, "Yo, Poggle, you want to stop this?" And Poggle's <laughs> like, "Nope, because I'm gone. I have <laughs> left." 
Bye. Oh, while you weren't looking, I added a hyperdrive to my limited range ship. Bye. And he dips. He dips. And it's like, oh, Krennic, you underestimated an engineer. How interesting. (laughs) This is not going to be a trend for you, I hope. Oh, yes, it will be. Oh, yes, it will, because you don't learn your lessons. (laughs) So, uh, Poggle makes his daring escape. Uh, Apparently, we'll we'll find out later that it's short-lived, that he will be killed uh, in in the fighting uh, very soon. Uh, But he does escape Geonosis. Meanwhile, Lakori is being bombarded again, and Galen is arguing with his boss about how better to shield the city. And his boss is like, uh, we only run one kind of shield here. <laughs> Listen, son, I'm not a theoretical physicist. I run one shield. And while they're arguing, the shield drops because he wouldn't let Galen make the mod- modifications. Uh-huh. And then Lakori is invaded by battle droids. Yeah. From There's- every angle. And they have to, like, run for the hills to uh, to get out of the city because they're being invaded. There's there's a, a couple of passages. I, I have a, a couple of passages highlighted here from their from their escape. One about, it starts with Jin. It's a Jin silent in the carrier and holding on for dear life. The sky was filled with tracer rounds, red pulses of energy and blinding explosions. Soot and particles filled the air and the day grew dark as the sun was eclipsed by smoke. Galen wrapped a moistened kerchief around Jin's face. Highlighted that because that's again more like Jin from birth has been dealing with war and and horrors and and running and running and running and running. That's not like that's all she's done from the day yeah. she was born. And you see it like ingrained in her DNA here at this point. Like she's silent and holding on for dear life. She doesn't start crying until like the like the very 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 end when the battle droids collapse. Yeah. Um, because that's just who who she is. Now we know Jin as an adult, as somebody who's very like stoic and very controlled, um, and doesn't show emotions until until she loses, until she's you know losing her dad, or until you right. know, she's or confronted until, until with her the dad. The fight is the fight is temporarily over, right? Um, I I think it's interesting. Uh, Lyra is the one who is ready to go. Like we've already said, like Lyra is he's nursing plan B and C and D and E the entire time that Galen is doing this dead end job, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, Galen runs up to Lyra and is like, we got to go. And J- Lyra's already got Jin in a carrier with a helmet on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jin's got her little baby helmet on. <laughs> Which is adorable. So and cute. Lyra already knows where the battle droids are and where they should head and what the plan is and how many how many days of supplies they have and maybe they can hunt for a game and they should live by the river so that they have running water. She's and like, got her Lyra's bug just, out bag. She's ready. She's yeah. got it. And and so when they make this escape and yeah they're they're with a bunch of other refugees and slowly every other refugee is picked off and they get cornered by these battle droids because every option that Lyra has considered Every backup plan that they had just turns them around, runs them right back into battle droids. Which is then when Galen pulls a move that is so dramatic and so Star Wars. When Galen places himself in front of Lyra and Jin, lifts his face to the darkened sky and screamed, Is there no escape from this madness? It's delight. That's a delightful. And, then, and, and in doing moment. so, kills the droids. And in doing so, kills the droids. He yells, "Is there no escape from this madness?" And then the battle droids all die. 
of course then he's like oh somebody must have gotten to the central command computer but what what he doesn't know what neither of them knew or could have known is that the war so abruptly begun three years earlier was just as suddenly over that's the end of the clone wars the clone wars just end moments before the the ursos are set to be murdered by battle droids yeah literally cornered shouting because there's nothing else to be done and they just die i'm a little critical of that moment i'm gonna be real like when when i when I read that, I was like, uh, really? <laughs> like, everybody but the Ursos died? You know, I know there are protagonists, and we love them. But, like, it's a little unreasonable to me. I would I would have preferred that they escape with a few other refugees. Yeah. Or that they make it into the hills and, and watch the city burn, and then suddenly it goes quiet. Or something. Uh, this makes them feel miraculous and special. Which, I mean, again... They are they to are. me. <laughs> I mean, they uh, are, aren't they? Like, Lyra's a little Force-sensitive, and Jin is destined for for great things. And, you know, they're all geniuses. Like, yeah. I guess they, you know, they are a little magical. That's true. And and so I I just, when I went, okay, that was a lot, I, I was just like, did, did, that, did it need to be like that uh, from a storytelling standpoint? Maybe. Um... At any rate, the Ursos escape and uh, board board a craft back to, I guess, Coruscant is where they're heading next. Yeah. So we're in Chapter 13. We get like, oh, yeah, there's still like a few minor skirmishes to settle. You know, the Clone Wars aren't like over, over, but they're basically we're just we're just you know, wrapping up here. But the Jedi are for sure done. They're gone. Their their order yeah. has been dissolved. As they keep saying things like that. Not we had them all murdered. We order sixty six them real good. They're like, Oh right. yeah, no, the Jedi order, they're um they're just gone. I don't know what happened. Yeah, but you know, at the same time, things have changed dramatically kind of in name only, right? Right. Like, okay, yeah, the Jedi are gone. That's a that's a seismic shift, and Palpatine is the Emperor now, not the Grand Chancellor, but Krennic is aboard a Star Destroyer. You know, he was aboard a Venator-class destroyer six months ago, and now it's an Imperial Star Destroyer. It has changed shape and name. You know? It's still the same thing. What I really love about the beginning of Chapter 13 is we get a moment where we find out that Krennic is vaguely aware of Darth Vader. Yes. Uh, that Darth Vader exists, but I don't know. He's uh, he's some guy. Some kind, of, some kind of being traveling with the Emperor uh masked and caped clothed and head to toe black and evidently feared by many and then says uh vader's eccentric fashion sense notwithstanding oh my god <laughs> he's so sassy like krennic you're wearing a white cape like <laughs> you are wearing a white tunic and a white cape with knee-high boots krennic like come on Fa- eccentric fashion sense come on uh-huh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. you should talk you know, you didn't even survive lava burns, okay? So you don't have an excuse. <laughs> um, but nobody knows who Vader is. Like right, Vader's that's true. existence as Anakin Skywalker is a complete secret. Right. So, so one day Palpatine just announced, "By the way, I'm traveling with Darth Vader." Um, and everybody goes, and "All that's, right." <laughs> who is Darth Vader? Oh, he looks scary. <laughs> He's Some kind of wizard, I presume? Eccentric fashion sense. <laughs> With eccentric fashion sense. Um, so anyways, 
Uh, Krennic still has to get Galen. Like, all of this regime change, government name change, it's an empire now, whatever. Krennic has one job left if he wants to keep moving up. And he needs to get Galen. He has to get Galen. So he, he calms the Ursos on their way uh, to Coruscant and says, hey, uh, pull off on this other planet and have a talk with me. And so they do. And they meet in this fancy hotel where somebody is chiseling Palpatine's face onto the wall. Ew, which face? The, <laughs> uh, his, I like, assume the wrinkly one. His handsome face or his wrinkle face? His wrinkle face. Yikes. Um, <laughs> and, by the way, meanwhile, uh, because the the old president of Helical Hypercom was killed in the fighting, Galen has an offer to be president of Helical Hypercom. <laughs> which, which he knows he can't do because it would involve, like managing people and not being the research scientist that he wants to be right but he's like well i'd be rich at least and the war's over i guess it's something you said something to me earlier today um that that had me thinking you're right when you say that the like day-to-day life or like the things that they're that these characters are doing are not affected by the end of the clone wars as far as we can tell palpatine becoming the emperor and the republic becoming the empire does not seem to affect anybody on the ground like any normal citizen of the former republic kind of just goes all right so it's an empire now it's not going to change how mustard tastes. <laughs> like, and, and, and they just kind of roll with it. Because, at, you know, on the, on the ground level, it doesn't seem to matter. Of course it does matter. Because Palpatine's super evil. And, the, and, you know, and there's no more democracy. Or there won't be when they dissolve the Senate in a few years. And that's, like, really, that's really bad for these people. But at the moment, it's just, oh, good. Nobody's going to bomb our planet right now. We're, yeah. So that's... So I guess the Empire's fine. It's like a net good. Like, the the only material difference for the Ursos is that the place where they were about to die is no longer a battlefield. And that's like that's a huge difference. Don't get me wrong. Like, that, they, they lived because the Clone War ended. But right. that it's an Empire now and not a Republic, it's immaterial. Right. Like, like Krennic is still a middle manager, same rank still wants Galen to come work for him, you know? And and Krennic still, you know, warps in on his Venator-class Imperial starship and is like, do you want a job? <laughs> it's the same. Yeah. And and you, you get the sense that Galen is having trouble, you know, adjusting. You know, he, he is thinking to himself, like, you know, he assured Galen that the additional travel expenses would be covered by the Empire, or this is Krennic's thoughts. He assured Galen that his additional travel expenses would be covered by the Empire. The Empire. The galaxy was still reeling from the events of the last few months. But it's, I mean, it's like meet the new boss same as the old boss, right? Yeah. And in this case, the new boss is the same as the old boss. It's the same Um, boss. (laughs) Yeah. He was also the bad guy before, but now he's the same. Like, it's just Palpatine has been in charge the whole time. Yeah. It's just he's got a new name that makes him feel important now. Yeah. And so they're doing things like, uh, you know, knocking down uh, refuges on uh, Coruscant to build, like, new weapons research facilities. And, like, that's evil. But, like, the Republic was also 
building refu- uh, uh, building weapons research facilities, building a Death Star out in space above a Geonosis, right? Like, it it's just it's small changes. It's changes in tone, um, and it honestly it mimics the rise of an actual fascist regime, right? Which is very intentional, um, as as Lucas has often said about writing the prequels. Right, this is how democracy dies. With thunderous um, applause. <laughs> right, and and people can be cool with it in the moment because they see themselves having a place in that. Right. Um, and and for the Ursos, it's it's much the same. They were trying to avoid governments and conflict before. They still are, but there is one difference, and it's what Krennic has to offer them now that they didn't have to offer before. And that is. Kyber crystals. Uh, a thing that Galen could not get during the Republic because, you know, only the Jedi had access to kyber crystals. And so he had to grow them himself. But, of course, his synthetic kyber crystals were no good. They they were like kyber, kind of, but they, they couldn't channel the energy the way a living kyber crystal can. Exactly. Uh, which is virtually limitless in the power it can wield. So now... Now, Krennic can call his old friend Galen over and be like, listen, I know you said you didn't want to work with us before, and I totally understand, except here, how about now? And then dumps a box of kyber crystals onto the table. It's like, here you go. And Jin immediately, being a toddler, is like, I I want want one. one. (laughs) She says, I want one, and Lyra says, maybe someday. Which, (laughs) ouch. Because you know she only gets one because Lyra gives it to her before she dies. And that's... You know, that's foreshadowy. Um, but yeah, Jin's like, ooh, shiny. <laughs> and Galen's like, ooh, shiny. Um, they're they're all like, oh my god. Like, not only now if we join we can join the Empire and there's no war, so we're not joining the war machine. That that is still the same, you know, the the exact same principle that they had. Um, but also now Galen can work with the true focus of his scientific interests. This is what he's been working for this whole time is trying to get his hands onto kyber crystals. And and so now Krennic's like, here you go. You you're my friend. Come work with me and this all this treasure is yours. Yeah. It's it's impossible to say no to. Yeah. And it is it is becoming increasingly clear that they don't really have a choice. And that they've kind of just walked right into a, a situation where they can't. They not only is it like, wow, I can't say no to this. This is great. They can't say no. No. Uh, this is this is bigger than them, and it's not just bigger than them. Lyra picks up on it immediately. Where could these kyber crystals have come from? They're about the size of a human finger. And then yeah, Lyra Lyra points out says they could only have come from Jedi lightsabers. Like, oh my god, we have kyber crystals now. And Lyra, who loves and, like, respects the Jedi and thinks about them all the time in regards to her own faith, is like, there's no way that these came from anywhere else. Yeah. And we heard about the Jedi's, uh, you know, the Jedi Order dissolving. So now there's proof here that not only did they dissolve, but they're probably all dead. And here's their weapon right here in yeah. front of you. The spoils of war. That's such a such a massive thing to wrap your head around. The the depth of that moment and the like tragedy of that. 
that there's enough of them to have a carrying case and like this big old box and like a whole deal. I don't even remember if they said how many there were, but there must have been like a lot. He's got a he's got a briefcase full of them, and they are like nested in like memory foam. So it's it's kind of like he's got a briefcase full of like precious gems. But it's more than two. I'll tell you that. It's a bunch. It's a um, bunch, and that's the Jedi's lightsabers, just yeah. totally dismantled and and sold for parts. And these parts are the bribe to get Galen to come aboard, and it's the the nail in the coffin for Galen yeah. or so. And Krennic, Krennic approaches the moment with such casual, as usual, right? He's just like, oh, this is just something I'm going to provide you with. Go ahead. Here you are, Galen. You're my friend. You're my friend. Here's some kyber crystals. <laughs> let's play with crystals. Um, let's go pay, play with crystals and not blow people up. I, I, or do, you know, if you want. We could. We'll get there. Do you want to? <laughs> um, honestly, this is this is Krennic, too. This is Krennic to a T. Uh-huh. He, there, there's a new resource. He's using it. Yeah. And that's all it is. Exactly. A new resource. And that's that's honestly at the end of the day, they are friends. But that's all Galen is too. So we will find out what happens to them all in section two entitled The Pursuit of Peace. Chapters fourteen through twenty-two. Chapters fourteen through twenty-two. We will be discussing next month. So thank you all so much for listening, for joining us. I hope that was um you know interesting and that we had some insights and if you have been reading the book along with us and you also have some insights we want to hear them so you should probably go ahead and contact us on the internet on the internet or as star wars people would call it the hollow net the hollow net we are always on this fun little site on the hollow net called twitter.com the bird site we uh we are constantly <laughs> we are constantly tweeting on the bird site and um, and if you're on Twitter also, you should join us. The show, you can find the show at Rogue Fun Pod. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Alice White THP for those happy places. Yeah, and I'm at uh, Buddy underscore Duquesne. Uh, Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. I am not on TikTok or Instagram, but I am on Twitter. I'm always on Twitter. Always on Twitter. We love Twitter. So we want to hear your thoughts about the book, uh, whether you're reading it for the first time or you're rereading it along with us, or if you're not reading it, you're just listening to us recap it. We want to hear what you guys think about all of this because a lot is going on and a lot will continue to go on um, as we delve deeper into the book. And if you are interested in joining our Discord server, you should do that. We can send you a link, an invitation link to join our Discord server through Twitter or email if you want to email us at thosehappyplaces at gmail.com. Those Happy Places is our other show, our flagship show about theme parks, rides, and attractions and how they are like literature. And if that sounds like something you are interested in, you should check it out. Check out uh, Those Happy Places and all of our other shows online at thosehappyplaces.com. Yeah, uh, it was interesting to finally do a literary analysis episode. After doing literary analysis of everything but books, uh, to come back to, like, a book and talk <laughs> about it and how it's constructed uh, has been actually really refreshing. I, I have missed talking about books and I'm so glad that Catalyst is here for us uh, to do that um, as we, you know, carry on our uh, extended love letter to Rogue One 
in the form of this show. Alice, if people like what we do and they want to support us, my favorite way of receiving support is to hear that people have shared the show on their social media with people they know will love it. Yes, anybody that that shares the show uh, or reviews or rates us on your favorite podcatcher. We're also on Spotify now, if you want to rate us on Spotify. We are, um, we love to hear that you've shared the show. Tell your friends if they love Star Wars, if they like Rogue One, or if they don't like Rogue One, but want to learn to like Rogue One. Um, you know, we, that's, that's such a good way to support the show is to share and tell your friends. But if you are interested in supporting the show monetarily, we do have a Patreon. Yeah. Patreon.com slash those happy places is the place to go for all sorts of cool rewards. We have rogue fun minisodes. We have those happy places minisodes. We have entire bonus episodes of both shows there. You can also sign up to get rogue fun stickers or uh, Those Happy Places stickers or postcards or pins. Uh, it is a great place. Also, one of the rewards we offer for backing us on Patreon is we read your name at the end of every episode of every show we produce. Yes, we do. And I shall do that right now. Let's see. We have Charles G, Oslam C, April L, J, Ian E, Nick H, Joe W, and Kate P, who are all amazing and at various tiers that let us read your name at the end of every show and say thank you so much for your support. You are all gentle people and scholars. The shows would not be what they are without you. And because of folks like you, we are able to, um, you know, buy books to read <laughs> and things like that, which is just so, so good and so helpful. So thank you all. Um, and Alice... Thank you for doing this show with me. Oh my gosh, thank you for doing this show with me. It really is a joy to meet with you every single month. Um, even this late in the month, possibly this this episode might end up coming out uh, in February. Um, <laughs> you know, it's to, to meet with you every month and to talk about this piece of media that's so, so important and so influential. And... Um, it's just it's a joy you always bring some of the best analysis and your your brain is so sharp it's a, a pleasure to do this show with you alice you are my best friend i would not imagine doing this show with anybody but you and with that rogue fun pulling away may the force be with us